Praise the Lord. It's great to see somebody who loves history. I'm always excited about the history part of it. I actually enjoy the history part of it. A lot of people don't, and I understand that, so I'm going to try to be as entertaining as I can. Praise the Lord. Let's just open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, and uh, we just ask that you help us, Lord God, to um, have understanding that comes from you, Lord. Lord, there's a lot of things that are going on around us, Lord, and you, um, Lord, you said that um, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And uh, Lord, you said that um, you would exalt the nation, Lord God, uh, uh, where there's righteousness, Lord God, your righteousness, Lord. And Lord, we ask you today to give us a firm foundation to stand on, Lord God, and bless this message, Lord God. Let it be your words, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week, uh, the title of my message was The Source and Hope of America's Potential Greatness. And this is the second part of that message. And like I said, I'm going to be teaching history, which is a little different. But last week, I got to about seven, eight pages of notes and realized I couldn't go any further in my notes. It'd be too long of a message. This week on part two, I got to another seven or eight pages and realized it's going to have a third part. So some of you that aren't, don't enjoy history, you still need to know the information. So um, we need to really be attentive to what's being taught here. Not only listen to it and say to yourself, that's what I believe, but what you need to do is go home and make sure that's what you believe. Make sure you look at the sources that I'm citing and study history and study the uh, things that I'm saying to see if they're true or not true, because we have to know in these days that we live in what we believe in. Uh, I believe we have a pivotal election that is coming up, and I think it's important for everybody to study for themselves, not take my word for it, but listen to what I'm saying and study it out. So last week, just a little bit of review. I started off with what made America great. And basically what I mean by that is, Not everything that you do and I do is great, right? Some of you say to yourself, well, I'm just great. Everything I do is great. But everything you do is not great. In fact, if we were to write a history of your life, and it was a true history, there'd be a lot of bad things that you wouldn't want to share. How many agree? There's a few here that just, they don't believe that. They totally disagree with what I'm saying. And even in the Bible, when you look at the histories of Samuel and Kings, how many know that that history is written by a prophet? And it's the exact same history that's written in Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is the same period of history, and it's a history book, but it's written in a, from a priestly point of view. And the book of Samuel and Kings is one history, and it's the same history as First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles was written by a prophet at the moment that they were destroyed. And so it's telling the people you were destroyed because your behavior was really bad. And here's all the things you did wrong, and this is why God had to judge your nation. But then Chronicles was written after they had been in exile. And so that history is more optimistic, and it's telling the people, here's what you did well, and here's what made you great. I mean, understand the difference in the two histories. One is trying to encourage a people that have been broken by exile and saying, hey, God has a plan for your nation, and at one time you were great, and here's the reasons why you were great. Whereas Samuel and Kings, which is really one, one history, one book, really, those histories were to tell the people that, hey, I made you great, but here's all the things you did and running as fast as you could away from me. Okay, and so America has the same history. There are certain things that made America great, and those things still exist in this nation, but there's another history, which uh, as it turns out will be my message next week, of things that we did running away from God simultaneously to God blessing us and things we did right. And so the message here is a continuation from last week, and I started off last week's message basically saying, Does God approve of nations or nationalism? And as I went through that, and I'm just giving you a recap here, 
but God actually ordained nations because there was an event called the Tower of Babel where all the nations came together. In fact, there were no nations. Everybody came together as one with one language, and that um, that uniting of the people was evil. God did not like it. They were building a tower, and so God said, from now on, we'll scatter them on the face of the earth, and in the following chapter, show all the nations on the face of the earth that God scattered them into nations. And so God has used the nations as a way of discouraging evil from spreading all over the world. In fact, nations disagreeing with other nations is what keeps one world ruler from coming on the scene and just uniting evil all over the world. How many can see that? And so God created nations. And you say, well, man, maybe I should be part of this United Nation movement where we're going to unite all the nations and get rid of the nations and lose their sovereignty. And I would tell you that's a very unbiblical ideal. In fact, the Bible says there will be restraint against that until the last days. And then the restraint will be removed, and the Antichrist will be the head of that kingdom when the nations give their power to the Antichrist. How many understand this biblical principle? So the idea of uniting the nations and giving your power to an organization to become a one-world government is very unbiblical. And so the idea of nationalism is, do I love my nation and have allegiance to my nation? And that question is, what are you? What do you have allegiance to? Is it righteous or is it unrighteous? And what I'm going through here is the righteous things that made this nation great. And when you pledge allegiance to your nation, these are the things you should be thinking of, and these should be the things that you're trying to actively change in our nation. How many agree with that? And I mentioned last week that the um, statistic was 56 million evangelical Christians stayed home and did not vote. And had they voted, their numbers alone would have changed the values of the entire nation. How many understand that? 40% of Christians did not vote in the last election. And so I'll give you a little insight into what will make America great again, which was my last section that I'll eventually get to. Number one thing I can tell you right now is going to be that if Christians were involved, we wouldn't be in the problem we're in right now. We, our numbers are too massive in a democratic society, a democratic republic, that we should impose our values just by sheer numbers. Okay, And so that's the purpose of this message, to understand you can't hide your head in the sand. We've got to be actively involved. One of the ways that we need to think if we're going to be biblical, is we can't vote our union above our Christianity. We're Christians first. So if our union has a platform that is anti-Christian, every Christian in that union should stand up and say, I'm opposed to my union because I'm a Christian. If you are a party member of a political party, Every Christian in that political party, when you see something that doesn't agree with you being a Christian first, you should stand up and say, I disagree with this. This should not represent me because I'm a Christian. Because we're Christians before our union. We're Christians before our political party. We're Christians above political correctness. And so it's time for the Christians to begin to stand up. And in order to stand up, you have to know what you believe or you won't know when to stand and when to sit. And we want to stand. And we want to be counted in these days that we're in. So nationalism is very important. In fact, uh, you say, well, man, I'll be glad when the day comes that the Lord returns and there's no more nations. How many many would say amen to that? Good, I'm glad. That's the right answer. Because in Revelation 21, it says this. Revelation 21 at the end, it says the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. What a wonderful place, isn't it? I may have heard of this city. 
God is the light, no sun, no moon. This is awesome. No need for sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. Wow, there's still nations. And the nations, present tense, are walking in its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. So you see the lasting impact of nations. And you see the very beginning where God scattered them into nations. And then you see the very end where the nations are entering. And so something that God ordained, it's not biblical or Christian to say there shouldn't be nations. And so what do we find politically being expressed? And that is there should not be nations. We say a whole group in our nation saying there shouldn't be borders, there shouldn't be nationalities, there shouldn't be, everything should be open, and there should not be nations. And I can tell you from the authority of the Word of God, that's unbiblical. In fact, they define what a nation is, and here's what they commonly define a nation to be. A nation has a common language, a common culture, a common currency, and enforceable national borders. That's what a nation is. And what is under attack today? Nations. And so I first want to make sure last week I laid that foundation that we need to understand that being a nation is something that God ordained because he does not want evil to spread all over the world. He wants it to stop at the borders and then let the next nation reevaluate it and desire blessing. God said he wants to bless nations. He wants to exalt nations. He wants to lift them up. And if he doesn't, Like nations, and why does he want to do that? Because he wants to stop sin at a border and bless the next one so the other peoples will look and say, wow, look at that city, they're blessed, and change their ways. And so we've got an obligation. You say, well, man, the tide has turned, Chad. There's so many wicked in this nation, we can't ever do it again. If you study American history, you're going to realize that's never. there's never been a time in history of the Americas when there's ever been a majority of righteous people. It's always been the influential, whether righteous or evil, steered a nation. You say, well, it's different now. It's not, trust me. I've studied history of America. I've studied history of Israel. How many have ever studied the Bible and the history of Israel? And I'm telling you, there's never been a time that a nation is not going to have wicked as well as righteous. But we still are called in every generation to fight for righteousness. And so don't abandon this nation. Don't abandon what God wants to do in this nation. Don't abandon what it means for a remnant to rise up and pursue righteousness as a nation and as a people. Amen? So as we go on here, I went into the Bible was the authority upon which they built their ideals. And remember, all I'm doing here is extracting the points that make America great. I'm extracting... um, We became a great nation, and you look back and say, well, how was that? This bad thing happened, this bad thing happened, that bad thing happened. What I'm trying to do is focus in on the few things that God looked at and said, I'll make this the greatest nation in the world. Because if these things aren't present, we'll be destroyed as a nation. And so we need to focus on the things that made us great, because if we want to in the future be a righteous nation and God bless us continually, We need to go back to these things. So number one was the authority that they built their society on was biblical ideals. And I'm going to the period of 1776. And next week I'll go into the period of about 1600 to 1776. And it wasn't built on these ideals. It was built on a lot of different ideals. And in 1776, they came together and built their nation on a different set of ideas. And I'm going to explain next week how that happened. It's not easy teaching history. So um, that's why I've taken my time here to make sure I do it right, because there's a lot of ideals that are coming together, and, and I've got to sort through 500 years of history to try to get a clear picture here. 
But the authority, and I read a lot of information last week, get the message if you want to hear it, but one-third of our foundation of the Founding Fathers, 215 different people were studied, 15,000 articles, all 55 framers of our Constitution. They studied all their writings, and one-third of their quotes came from the Bible. The next closest was 8%. And so they clearly were making a point that we're building our foundation on ideals from the Bible. And that's very unique in the world that they lived in, and even the, the world that they grew up in, in the Americas, it was very different. And for them to come together and build it on those ideals was pretty amazing. The second thing that made us great was we were one of the first nations in the history of the world to recognize that rights did not come from man. That God created man in the image of God, and because man and animals are different, Amen? Some people want to say that we're just a higher animal, or that animal rights and human rights are equal rights. And we don't want to be cruel to animals. Don't get me wrong here. Don't go the other direction. But we are the first, one of the, probably the first nation in the world that realized, and they kind of stumbled upon it, I'll be honest. But they began to realize in 1776, this is the beginning, the inception, because from 1600 to 1776, It was a different world over here. But they recognized that God gave rights to humans because they were unique from all of the animal kingdom. And that was that they were made in the image of God. And all through the Bible, God never changes his mind. He never says, well, you're so bad, you're not in my image anymore. And so the recognition that man was made in God's image meant that every human being, every color, every race, every age, uh, had human rights. And the human rights weren't given by a nation or granted by a nation. Governments in Genesis, uh, our founding fathers realized the, the rights given in Genesis were given by God and governments were established to protect them only, not give them or take them away. And so 1776 was the beginning of that idea. And next week I'm going to show you how they got to that conclusion, which is the mess that was before that. In 1600 to 1776. And that's the period that we don't get a whole lot of history about. And there are a lot of people that don't like that history being talked about around 1600 because they all have a reason not to tell that history. And I I very rarely ever hear it told. But next week we'll talk about that history and how they came to the conclusion that, hey, human rights are a big deal. And so that made us great because nowhere in the world do they recognize human rights as coming from God. And there are many, many rulers, dictators, monarchs that took their rights and didn't give rights and didn't allow rights and were very cruel to individuals. And so the nation recognized that made the nation great. Next, they recognized that their human nature is sinful, that they have a depraved heart, that every human being is a sinner and has a sin nature. You say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, they understood that we can't put all of our power in one person's hands. We've got to separate the powers, which will make it more difficult to govern, but we won't allow a sinful person to be like God. Uh, We have to separate it amongst many people. And how many think that you could be a ruler over all the people and make righteous judgments? If a lot of you were honest with me, a lot of you would say, I could do that. I'm just being honest. The human nature says... Sure, invest it all in me. I'm smart enough. I'm charitable enough. I'm good enough. And over history, that's been the majority opinion. That if you get the power, you say, oh, no, no, I'm sinful, man. I'm really humble. I wouldn't do that. But when it comes to you and they say, hey, will you be our king? Your mind would change. You would say, well, sure, yeah, unlimited power. I'm very benevolent and kind and compassionate. And and I'll tell you something, that way of governing hasn't fared too well over the course of history. And so they understood separation of powers, and we won't let one person rule over us. And this was a new thing in 1776. This wasn't something that was happening all over the world. And so that's a thing that made us great. Now, this week, I've caught you up. All right. The next thing was that made them great is they realized that they had a consensus among this nation that we are a Christian nation. And you say, well, man, doesn't that happen all over the world? No, you look around the world and 
they would shudder at that idea and run from that idea. But they realized here there was consensus among our early fathers and our early framers of our Constitution that we are a Christian nation. And you say, well, man, wouldn't that be bad for everybody that is not Christian? And the truth is, that was the thing that protected all other religions. Because of the fact that we were a Christian nation was the reason why everybody else was protected to worship freely. And let me explain that a little bit. Here is a quote, just to kind of lay a foundation for the fact that they believe themselves to be a Christian nation. This is from Joseph Story whose commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. He was born in 1779 to 1845. So this guy was considered to be, he was an early constitutional scholar, born in 1779. So that first, you know, 60 years of our Constitution, he was considered the father of jurisprudence in the United States of America. In fact, it says that he authored, he authored 269 Majority opinions in the Supreme Court. So a majority opinion is, we all agree, and this is the judgment of the Supreme Court in this case, and so the, the justice will come, and for, on behalf of the other ones who voted in favor, he'll give the majority opinion. And so he'll read what the majority opinion was on behalf of the other justices. And it says, here's a quote from him, Probably at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and of the amendment to it now under consideration, the First Amendment, the general, if not universal, sentiment in America was that Christianity ought to receive encouragement from the state. So far as it was not incompatible with private rights, conscience, and freedom of religious worship, an attempt to level all religions and to make that a matter of state policy to hold all in utter indifference would have created universal disapprobation. If not universal indignation. But that was from 1892 where he is clearly saying that Christianity should receive encouragement from the state. Now that's an unusual thing to say, isn't it? Why should Christianity receive encouragement from the state? Meaning we want to support and encourage the practice of Christianity in this nation. And he's saying that's almost universally understood by this nation. Then, this is from David Josiah Brewer. He was a Supreme Court Justice, and this was a ruling from 1892. This is uh, his ruling in favor of First Trinity Church. I want you to hear what he said because this really got him in... This was kind of a little bit of a controversy in 1892. He said, This is historically true from the discovery of this continent to the present hour. There is a single voice that makes this affirmation. So he's saying they're all unified. There's consensus in what I'm saying here. And what's the consensus? These are not sayings, declarations from private people, They are organic utterances, the speaking of one voice to the entire people. These and many other matters might be noticed at a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. So he couldn't have made it more clear, right? And this was actually from a Supreme Court decision where he was stating what all the other justices believed. So later they criticized him for saying that, But he's saying the consensus is we're a Christian nation. So he wrote a book in 1905 to clarify what he meant. It's called The United States, a Christian Nation. But in what sense can it be called a Christian nation? Not in the sense that Christianity is the established religion of the people, or in any matter compelled to support it. On the contrary, the Constitution specifically provides that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Neither is it Christian in the sense that all the citizens are in fact named Christians. Do you understand where he's going? We're not establishing Christianity as the national religion. Also, Congress is actually saying we're not going to make a single religion that everybody has to follow. So he's trying to say, in what sense is it Christian? Neither is it Christian in the sense that all the citizens are in fact named Christian, right? Just like today. 
On the contrary, all religions have free scope to operate in our borders. Numbers of our people profess other religions, and many reject all religion. Nor is it Christian in the sense that a profession of Christianity is a condition of holding office or otherwise engaging in public service, or essential for recognition either politically or socially. In fact, the government as a legal organization is independent of all religions. Nevertheless, we constantly speak of this republic as a Christian nation. In fact, as the leading Christian nation of the world, this popular use of the term certainly has significance. It is not a mere creation of the imagination. It is not a term of derision, but has substantial basis, one which justifies its use. So you understand, he's saying we're a Christian nation. We're recognized around the world as a Christian nation, not because we force people, because our nation gives people freedom because we're a Christian nation. And they understand freedom because we're a Christian nation. And so why did he insist on calling us a Christian nation? And I read all that to get to this point. There's a reason why they felt like it was critical that we were a Christian nation and that we were um, partnering with Christianity. And the reason why is because the Constitution... If you read, the, how many have ever read the Constitution? You say, man, that thing is so thick. How many think it's too thick to read? In fact, I have several of them, and they're just little bitty, tiny booklets. In fact, how many think it's like Obamacare? 3,000 pages. Constitution's 11 pages with the Bill of Rights. Now, how can you govern a people with 11 pages? Because shouldn't you add everything that is a... I mean, this document should be 3,000 pages, like Obamacare. But it was 11 pages because they believed in limited government. But they also believed that this thing would totally fail if we had a people that were immoral. So if you try to govern an immoral people, there's no government design that can control a people that is immoral. So they partnered with Christianity, which meant our whole foundation has to be Christian in order to enable people to have rights from other religions, in order for people to have rights who are atheistic, in order to allow an agnostic or a deist, in order to allow rights and in order to allow people to self-govern themselves, we need Christianity to have a moral people. We need to base it on Christianity so they'll first be moral, and by self-governing themselves as a moral people, then we don't need to govern a whole lot. In fact, I'll show you how this is actually true in all their sayings. Back then, I wrote down here, it was not intended to micromanage people. It was intended to govern a self-governed people. They wanted the Bible to be the governor so they could self-govern their hearts. And then the government, whenever they didn't self-govern, then the government would have to step in. They didn't. That's why it's 11 pages. They didn't want to micromanage people. They wanted the people to be good, moral people who didn't really even need the law. And that's why it was built on Christian principles. In fact, listen to this quote. This is from Robert Winthrop. It says, All societies of men must be governed in some way or other. Let me agree with that. Society has to be governed in some way or you'll have chaos and anarchy. The less they have of stringent government, the more they must have of individual self-government. The less they rely on public law or physical force, the more they must rely on private moral restraint. Do you understand what he's saying? We don't want the federal government coming in with clubs. We would rather have people that are moral. You have to be governed by something. It's better to be governed by morality within yourself than to have a government have to bring morality, right? And so they said, the less they rely on public law or physical force, the more they must rely on private moral restraint. Now listen to this. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by power within them or by a power outside of them. 
either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. What they're saying is, if you don't have moral restraint within you, then you're going to be a lawbreaker. And if you're a lawbreaker, the only thing that we can do, if somebody murders somebody, then the law has to step in. Everybody agrees. Somebody steals something. Somebody assaults somebody. Somebody rapes. Somebody sexually assaults. All of these things require force to come in and deal with the situation. And they felt like if there was this first barrier of Christianity in the Bible, then people would morally be restrained. And they found that every other religion had very similar morality. And for a person to come in and be able to worship, whether they're agnostic, atheist, whatever they were, they just had to have a general agreement on morality to govern themselves. Otherwise, if it's unrestrained, like France, what's going to happen? You're going to have the constant force of government stepping in, and they didn't want government. That's why they wrote 11 pages. So they constantly, to the point of uh, setting aside money with Congress, to the way they set up their public schools, everything that they did had a foundation in the Bible. In fact, it was openly Christian, the public schools. It was openly Christian, the purchase of Bibles for the schools. Everything was openly Christian because they felt like without the Christian foundation, then the strong arm of the law would have to be much more prevalent in society. Does everybody understand this? Isn't this exciting on Sunday morning? Anybody bored? No? Okay, good. Awesome. This is a quote from John Adams, who was our second president, very influential in the founding of our country. He says, America's, or he says, because we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry. See what he's saying here? Because we have no government that can be armed enough to deal with the contending of human passions unbridled. That means doing whatever they want with no restraints. By morality or religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry, it would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a well goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Do you understand how dependent they were on having a society that was rooted in Christianity? And you say, well, did everybody have to be Christians? Well, I just read that. Not everybody had to be Christian. You didn't even have to be a believer. You just had to understand that our laws and our behavior is based on the laws that are in the Word of God. And that those laws gave them an ability to self-govern. And without those laws, he said it would be like a well just going right through a net. You know, he could just break it, break the Constitution in pieces, which is what's happening today. How many know that? When we threw away Christianity as the foundation of our school system, uh, Christianity is the basis of our laws. Remember I talked last week about the commentaries on the law that were natural law and we don't override God in any of our natural laws. Well, we've done that now. And that's one area that made us great back in these days where we based everything on Christianity. Uh, let me go on. There was a, um, actually this is a quote from John Jay. Many don't know that name, but he was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and he was actually uh, appointed by George Washington. That's a pretty good resume, isn't it? And he said this, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. He's not saying they have to be a Christian. He just says, as a Christian nation, it is our duty and privilege to appoint somebody who is a Christian. And so how many think that uh, he wasn't hiding the fact that we're a Christian nation, the first Supreme Court justice? But it's common now to separate faith and education. Earlier generations had a different view. They saw faith, listen to this, faith was the foundation of education, the main goal of it. After the U.S. gained independence... One of the earliest acts of Congress was in 1787. It said, Religion 
morality, and knowledge being necessary for good government. You hear that? Religion, morality, and knowledge is necessary for good government. And the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. So they're building a public school system, okay? And they're saying that religion, morality, and knowledge is necessary if we're going to have good government. So education in the United States, this is my next point. The first point was there was consensus that we were a Christian nation and our foundation was Christianity. The next one is our education system, because of those ideas, was based on Christianity. Our education system partnered with Christianity to educate our children. In fact, we'll get into next week. Um, there's kind of two nations that are forming here. One nation is the pilgrims, whom I'm very fond of, and the Puritans, they're kind of on one part of the seaboard. Then the other part of the seaboard is called the Virginia Company. And these are prospectors and adventurers and venture capitalists, and, and they have a whole different set of values. Whereas the northern... Pilgrim Puritan group, they have a different set of values. And so there's two nations that are emerging here. Now, our founding fathers and what happened with the Declaration of Independence largely was led by the more religious group. But next week, I'll tell you this other group that is growing that aren't necessarily Christian. And so that's part of the bad things about this country. And, and to be honest, that group never really ever separated. They're still very actively leaders in our country, and I'm going to trace you know, a lot of the history of the Virginia Company next week. <clears throat> but they begin to form the one eastern part, or the northeastern part. The Plymouth Colony came out of this area. This, this charter on the uh, northern part of the eastern seaboard, they began to set a high priority on education. The southern preferred not to educate them. They preferred to keep them dumb, illiterate, didn't care necessarily about the reading of the Bible. But the northern part, they wanted the most educated society possible, and so they began to institute universities and colleges. In fact, of the first 123 colleges and university, almost every single one, with the exception of maybe I don't even know what the exception would be. MIT was the first charter of a university that was chartered as an atheist organization. MIT was the first, and I think I put that year somewhere in here. Oh, it's 1861, 72 years after the founding of our nation. MIT was the first agnostic atheist organization that started a school. Otherwise, the first 123 were all based on teaching the Bible, raising up ministers, teaching people to read the Word of God, and they were Christian organizations. In fact, uh, this is a quote from D. James Kennedy. Harvard University began with a donation of money and books from Reverend John Harvard. The main goal of education was this, let every student be plainly instructed, earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life, and study to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17.3, and therefore to lay Christ as the only sound foundation of all knowledge and learning. Harvard University at its founding. And Harvard University was almost immediately, in fact, it's like 1630, I think, is the date, something like that. But almost immediately after landing at Plymouth, they started Harvard University. In fact, they also started the first public school. And here's a quote from the first public school. In fact, it was a law in 1642 in Massachusetts called the Satan Deluder Law. Have you ever heard of this law? The Satan Deluder Law, the old Satan Deluder Law, basically they felt like if people weren't educated and didn't know the Word of God, that they would be fooled by Satan. So in order to enact the first public schools, they wrote this. It being a chief project, the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures, as in former times, it is therefore ordered that after the Lord has increased our settlements, they shall appoint one within their town to teach all such children to read. They shall set up grammar schools to instruct youth. So every 
community that had a hundred people had to set up a school to instruct people in the Word of God. What did they use to teach them? They taught what was called the New England Primer. And so when they taught the letter A, it was in Adam's fall, we send all. Taught the letter C, Christ crucified for sinners died. D was the deluge drowned the earth around. J was Job fills the rod yet blesses God. N was Noah did view the old world and knew. And Z was Zacchaeus did climb the tree our Lord to see. So everything was based on learning your alphabet, learning to read the Bible, uh, building foundations so they couldn't be fooled by Satan. How many would like a law today for public schools called the old deluder law? Make sure Satan's not fooling our kids. Teach them the word of God first. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm just telling you things. You say, well, why are you going over this history? It's not like that anymore. I'm trying to tell you why we're great. And you went on the list here. Look, Yale University, 1718. A donation from Elihu Yale. He was urged by his minister, Reverend Mather. Yale's purpose was this, quote, Youth may be instructed in the arts and sciences who through the blessings of Almighty God may be fitted for public employment both in the church and in the civil state. Yale University. Columbia University, the chief thing that is aimed at this college is to teach and engage children to know God in Jesus Christ. Princeton University, cursed would be all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. You see... And so what ended up happening? You say, well, why are they not Christian anymore? Then about 1830, the universities began to change. They became naturalistic. Listen to this quote. This is from a secular humanist in 1930, and this is the plan and the strategy of educators that were humanists. Education is the most powerful ally we have in humanism. Every public school can be a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday school meeting do an hour once a week, teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching we can have in the schools? You see that? The humanistic teacher said, we need to take over the school system because they only have an hour a day on Sundays, we can have them five days a week. And so you begin to see our school system, and I talked about this last week, if you're a teacher and you're in the teacher's union and you're a Christian, your Christianity should be above the teacher's union. And so when you see this hostile takeover of what formerly made us great, humanism in the schools. In fact, listen to this quote by Abraham Lincoln. It says, The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next generation. So what did the 1600s education system breed? You look at our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, the foundations of our country. The 1700s, what did it breed? It breeded a group of people that were willing to give their lives, 300,000 in total, to change a system that was 300 years old. What did the 1800s breed in the 1900s? Well, 1830, it starts to change. In the 1900s, you begin to see corruption start to enter in. And then you begin to see, as humanism is taught even more, what's happening to our society, church? What's the record of the 1830s till now with the next generation? And Abraham Lincoln was right. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. So we have a humanistic government now. And But what made us great wasn't a humanistic government. What made us great was a government who understood that we work in partnership with Christianity. It's necessary, absolutely necessary for our government. Praise the Lord. And one more quote. We can find it here. Okay, A.A. Hodge in 1887. He began to see the slide of our public school system going toward humanism. And here's what he said. See if this is not a prophetic word from A.A. Hodge. It says, I am as sure as I am of Christ's reign that a comprehensive 
and centralized system of national education separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed by people, will prove to be the most appalling engineering for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which the sin-rent world has ever seen. Education is not an end in itself. It must have a solid foundation and a sound purpose. Otherwise, it teaches people to live by Satan's lies instead of God's spirit of truth. Is that not a prophetic word for what happened to our education system? And if you're a teacher, I'm not cutting down teachers. I'm saying at the national level, you can read pages and pages and pages of writings of how it was intentionally secularized. In fact, they actually have came out and psychologists have said it's mentally damaging to kids to hear the Bible in school. It's mentally damaging to them. We can't allow them to pray. We can't allow them to hear anything about the Bible. But what they're teaching them is supposed to be good for them mentally. The foundation of sexual morality. The foundation of sexual morality. In fact, when you look at this group that began to establish our nation in 1776... How many know that our laws reflected a biblical morality? That doesn't mean that there weren't private things that didn't happen or this person did this or this person did that, but the laws reflected what God says He would bless a nation if they followed biblical sexual morality. We don't do that today. And so I just want to bring out this point that they were blessed because they did and will be cursed when we don't. And... um in Genesis it says, Then God said, who's, who's he quoting here? God. This is a quote from God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female. You know, there's a difference in the chromosomes between the two. One is a male, one is a female. How many have ever had a chromosomal change? Anybody here had that? Don't tell me. (laughs) Created them male and female, he created them. God blessed them, God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish, the sea, the birds, the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.24 For this reason a man who... A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wives. Not his wives, right? A man leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, singular. Marriage was God's ideal. Nobody has any ability to claim marriage except God. God determined it at the very beginning. It would be a man and a woman. It would be singular. And uh, this is how God ordained it. Jesus clarifies this in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, this is very fascinating. I don't. I was. Uh, there's a book that I um, got referred to, and I started reading the book, and it's pretty amazing. It's from an anthropologist. He finished his book in 1934, and I wasn't a Christian at all. He was. He was just not a religious person. But his entire life work was 5,000 years and studying how many cultures was it? 82 different cultures. 5,000-year history study, all right, of all the cultures of the world, 82 cultures, it's called Sex and Culture, finished the book in 1934, I believe. I was, um, I actually downloaded the book, and was. It, it's seven volumes. I haven't read the whole book. I've read lots of the book, but it's a long read. This guy studied his entire life as an anthropologist, and uh and he studied all these cultures. Well, I was reading an article on the book, 
from a group of people that weren't Christians either. And I like their reaction to the book even better than me reading the book. It says, and I'm going to read it to you, One winter afternoon, it says, Why sexual immorality may be far more important than we ever thought. These aren't Christians that are writing this article, okay? It says, One winter afternoon I was relaxing with a half dozen fellow graduates of philosophy, students discussing theories of law and punishment. About an hour into the discussion, it occurred to me that some... Some moral laws might limit pleasure in the interim, but in the long term, they may minimize suffering and maximize human fulfillment. A few days ago, I finished studying Sex and Culture for the second time. It is a remarkable book summarizing a lifetime of research by Oxford social anthropologist J.D. Unwin. The 600-page book is Unwin's words, is in Unwin's words only a summary of his research. Seven volumes would be required to lay it all out. His writings suggest he has a rationalist believing that he is a rationalist believing science are ultimate tool of inquiry. It appears that he is not a religious man at all. As I went through what he found, I was repeatedly reminded of the thought I had as a philosophy student that some moral laws may be designed to minimize human suffering and maximize human flourishing long time. Now stick with me here. He studied every society from all the way back to the Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Romans, Persians, every great culture. And he breaks it down, the patterns of human culture, and he breaks down the type of personalities. Remember, he's not a Christian. He says the first group he calls Zoeistic. They're self-focused on day-to-day life, on their wants and needs. They have no understanding in understanding nature, God, or anything. They just live. They're the most base, he said, of, of people. The second is monistic. They acquire superstitious beliefs, and they have special treatment of their dead and cope with the natural world the best they can. The third is deistic. They uh, have a belief in the powers of nature, and they attribute all to God or gods. Okay, he's not even using Christian terms here. Rationalistic, they use rational thinking to understand nature and make day-to-day decisions. So he breaks people up into those areas as he studies societies. And then he breaks them down into what he calls prenuptial and postnuptial categories. Prenuptial is what are their behaviors before marriage? How is marriage viewed? How do they behave sexually? And breaks them down into three categories. Complete sexual freedom, meaning there's no restraint at all before marriage, which is probably about where our society is at right now, except for certain pockets of people in different areas. The second area was irregular occasional restraint, meaning cultural regulations require an occasional period of abstinence. And then the last area was strict chastity, which means they remain a virgin until married. Postnuptial categories were five. Modified monogamy, where one spouse at a time, but association can be terminated by either party. Second is modified polygamy. Men can have more than one wife, but a wife is free to leave her husband. Absolute monogamy, when one spouse permitted for life and until death in their culture. Absolute polygamy, men can have more than one wife, but wives must confine their activities to their husband in the whole of their lives. And so he studied all of these cultures. Now listen to this. Here's a summary of what he found. The effects of sexual constraints, number one, increased sexual constraints, either pre- or post-nuptial, always led to increased flourishing of a culture. Conversely, the more freedom the culture had, it always led to the collapse of the culture within three generations. You say, well, how did he come to those conclusions? He studied their laws. When the laws got more lax and there became more sexual freedom, that society would be gone within three generations. But the societies that had the most restraint flourished as a culture. Isn't that amazing? The second thing, the single most influential factor in all of his studies. Surprisingly, the data revealed that the single most important correlation with the flourishing of a culture was whether prenuptial chastity was required or not. It had an extreme significant effect to the flourishing or the destruction of a culture. So whether they remain virgins as a culture before they were married, the ones that did were the most flourishing cultures. The ones that didn't were destroyed the quickest. 
Isn't that amazing? The highest flourishing of culture, the most powerful combination was prenuptial chastity coupled with absolute monogamy. Rationalist cultures that retained this combination for at least three generations exceeded all cultures in areas of literature, art, science, furniture, architecture, engineering, and agriculture. Only three out of the 86 cultures, actually I studied 86, studied ever attained this level. So only three cultures in the 86 attained that highest level of absolute monogamy and prenuptial chastity. Isn't that an amazing study? Effects of abandoning prenuptial chastity. When strict prenuptial chastity was no longer the norm, absolute monogamy, deism, and rational thinking disappeared from their society within three generations. Total sexual freedom. If total sexual freedom was embraced by culture, that culture collapsed within three generations to the lowest state, which Unwin described as inert or dead level of conception and is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. At this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture who has greater social energy. You're listening, America? Time lag. Here's the last one on it. If there is a change in sexual constraints, either increased or decreased restraints, the full effect of that change is not realized till the third generation. And then he concludes with this. Unwin's published his findings in 1936, long before the sexual revolution that occurred in the West. We now have an opportunity to test his conclusions by observing if our own culture is following the predicted pattern. Unwin's generation appears to be 33 years, so it should take about a century, 100 years, for us to see the cultural changes take full effect. But we are far enough along in the process that we should be able to observe predicted results. How many think that's probably a true study? That's big. So when our laws begin to change during the 30s a little bit, that's about 100 years ago, 90 years ago in the 30s, there began to be less restraint, laws encourage less restraint, and then the sexual revolution in the 60s has deteriorated us even more. And, and a lot of you see what I'm talking about. You see our culture changing in the areas of restraint. In fact, I'll get into things wrong with America. There should be decency laws that are proposed by our legislators. Democrat and Republican should be putting restraints on the Internet that's in the hand of every kid. And there's no restraints. There should be restraints on pornography that are in the hands of every kid. There should be restraints in all these areas. And Democrat and Republican won't do a thing right now to stop it. And they're, they're doing it under the name of freedom, and our forefathers would have been repulsed by that being called freedom. That was perversion, it's destructive to society, and it's destructive to our nation, and we won't last very much longer if we keep going down that course. In fact, here is a, um, you say, well, what was this world like, and how do you know they were great because of it? This is written by uh, Benjamin Franklin. He wrote a pamphlet. And remember, Benjamin Franklin was maybe the least religious of all the founding fathers. And he wrote a pamphlet to encourage people to come to America and was telling them what it was like. And a lot of people say he was an atheist or an agnostic or a deist. He wrote this, Hence, bad examples to youth are very rare in America. Atheism is unknown there. Infidelity is very rare and is secret so that great persons may live to a great age in this country without having their piety shocked by meeting either an atheist or an infidel. He's telling people from other countries that this nation, the morality, is very high. It's something that if you did it, you would hide it because it's not acceptable in our society. In fact, there was a man by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a an aristocrat. He was a, a political scientist. He was, a, he was one who studied political systems. And he came to America and he wrote a book called Democracy in America. And this was in the uh, early 1800s, around 1840. And he started writing. He wanted to know what makes America's democracy so much different than the rest of the world. In fact, he, it was really a question everybody had because America was thriving and they were great. 
and Europe wasn't so good. Europe wasn't doing very well. So de Tocqueville began to write down the things that he thought were what made America great at that time. And church, if we want to be great again, listen up on what he thought was great at that time. It says, there's no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. This is a guy that traveled the world. There can be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to human nature than that its influence is most powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation that is on the earth. Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more I did perceive the great political consequences resulting from the state of things to which I was unaccustomed. In France... I had almost always seen the spirit of religion, the spirit of freedom, pursuing courses diametrically opposed to each other. But in America, I found that they were intimately united. They reigned in common over the same country. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds it's impossible to conceive one without the other. Can you imagine that being said about America today? You say, well, Jed, we should have separation of church and state. Who told you that? Wasn't the founding fathers. Church, we're going to have to start teaching our history. We're going to have to start reading ourselves our history. I'm going to have to start preaching a lot more sermons on history because we're being told what to believe. And what we're being told to believe is a hijacking of our education system. And if that makes me unpopular with people, that's fine. But we better get a hold of what this was because if we were the only, if we were the symbol of a Christian nation back then, why do you think the enemy wants to destroy this nation? You know, I'm going to have to go another week telling, I haven't even got into the economic system. I haven't even got into the support that we have for Israel that the whole world hates. We were maybe even blessed as a nation just to help Israel. And I'm going to probably have to get into that before I can even get into the bad things. But church, we need to know these things. And you say, man, I don't know. This isn't a a normal message. I know that. I realize that. And I'm sorry. It's not. But um, church, I'm just afraid that if we don't know these things. In fact, I want to do my part on the wall. There's all kinds of gaps in the wall. And my part is here in Henderson and Evansville area. And I'm praying that the uh, ministers all over this country... In fact, it's my faith that tells me that the Spirit is causing ministers all over this country to preach these same messages. And, and we've got to respond. You say, well, man, that was a great message, and he's right, and, and I'm all fired up about my country. And then you don't go vote. Church, we need to register to vote. You know, all those others that want to impose their values on this country, they're, they're having voter registration drives everywhere. And I'm telling you, church, go online. It's very easy. Go online. Google, how do I register to vote and go vote because Christians need to vote in this next election like never before. You say, oh, is Donald Trump our solution? It's not Donald Trump that's our solution. It's fighting these groups of people that want to destroy our nation. Okay, and I've given you a good reason why our nation should be a nation, why our nation should have borders, why our nation should have a common currency, why our nation should remain a nation that is righteous. Now one day, we're going to be gone, and every restraint is going to be gone for the Antichrist to implement a system. But until that day, we should fight to the death. And I'm not even exaggerating. Amen? Hallelujah. Stand your feet. Remember one thing too. Our nation is never put above God or being a Christian. Does everybody understand that? God is the one that called us to have boundaries. God is the one that wants our nation to be blessed with righteousness. Those are the ends that we support our nation is we want God to reign in this nation. We want God to bless this nation. We want God to do great things in this nation because we want God to bless the people of this nation. We don't want to be cursed. But we never put God below our nation. 
God is number one. God is the reason why we fight. God is the reason why righteousness has to prevail in this nation. Our nation is not above God, and some people put the nation where God should be. And I'm saying do the opposite. Put God above your nation and let the nation be the instrument of God. And that's what God's calling us to do, church, not to put America up on a pedestal and say, hey, I'm devoted to these ideals that was different than any other ideals on the face of the earth at the time. And those ideals are what made us great, and those ideals we have to focus on and understand. And, uh, and understand also the bad, because we need to make an uh, impact in these areas where the enemy is succeeding in this country, where the enemy has made inroads in this country, where the enemy is freely operating in this country. We want to be smart enough about the Word of God to know certain things aren't freedom. You know, freedom of the press is not pornography. Freedom of the press is not half-naked women on the Internet. All right? Freedom of the press is not every manner of wickedness on the Internet. is not freedom. That's destruction to our nation. And we need to stand up and fight that. It used to be when it was a bookstore on the other end of town, we would fight it. But now it's the internet and nobody fights it. I mean, know that a lot of those people that are on those internet sites or have been abducted, have been abused. I'm telling you, they, the majority have been sexually abused their entire life and, and the church is silent. We've been convinced that that's freedom of the press, freedom to distribute whatever you want. And I'm telling you right now, the nation that was founded here would not approve of that. That's freedom of the press. We're going to have to wake up. Hallelujah. Just find a place to pray. Hallelujah.